0: Well, good morning, Bethel, and uh, as we come around God's word here together this morning, let's let's bow our, our heads and our hearts from each of our different homes today and prepare to meet with God. Heavenly Father, we love you, we worship you, you are our God. We praise you for sending your Son, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who lived, who died, who was buried, and who was raised. Holy Spirit, whom we now have as we've put our faith in Jesus, dwelling within us, we we give you honor and glory. And we want to ask that now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you would speak to us through your word, that the truth that we need to hear from you would just be resoundingly striking our hearts today and changing our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. One of the most iconic figures of the Bible is a young man named Daniel. Daniel, who was thrown into the what? You, you know the answer from home there're thrown into the lion's den. He truly is like, you know, right up on the list of most iconic characters from the Bible. I mean you th- you think of maybe Adam and Eve in the garden, you think of Noah and the ark, you think of David and Goliath, you think of Daniel in the lions den, you think of Jesus on the cross. These are probably some of the like the most known and familiar characters that come from the scriptures. And perhaps you even picture that whole little scene of Daniel in the lions den with like c- cute little cartoon characters or little felt figures that are up on, you know, flannel graph. But if you actually think about that story of Daniel being thrown into a pit of starving, ferocious lions that are going to rip him to shreds while people stand around and watch, it's actually an incredibly messed up story, isn't it? It's an incredibly disturbing tale. See, it's what Daniel experienced when he was swept up from his home, when this, this wicked, evil, vile army, the Babylonians came in and attacked. And that, that gives you a little insight, throwing people alive into pits of lions to watch them get ripped to shreds. That gives you a little bit of an insight into the kind of character that these Babylonians were. This happened when Babylon attacked Jerusalem in 587 BC. They came in, they utterly destroyed the Israelites. They they left Jerusalem in ruins. In Psalm 74 today, it, it was not written by Daniel, but it was written right around the time of Daniel's life it was written reflecting upon, anguishing over that pain and destruction and and the death and brutality and carnage that came from that attack. It's it's not what you might call a happy song. But friends, let's be honest. All of life isn't rosy, is it? All All of life isn't happy. Sometimes life hurts brutally at times. Sometimes we are in spots where it feels like all we can see is the pain and the brutality and the wickedness and brokenness and carnage. Sometimes all we feel is the taint of sin. Sin Perhaps done by us and all the brokenness that it has left. Sin done by those around us and feeling the brokenness of its repercussions. Sin done against us where we are on the receiving end. And as we have seen in the book of Psalms, as we've been on this journey in the book of Psalms, it's a a prayer book that God has given to us, his people, And it speaks to the whole gamut of human experiences. It meets us where we are at. It leads us to pray. It helps us to meet with the Lord and it carries us to hope. That's what Psalm 74 is going to do today. So grab your Bibles out from your home there. I encourage you, follow along in God's word so you see from the Lord what his word is saying here. And we're going to begin in verse 1, which is the first of three major sections in this psalm. And we see, first of all, the psalmist here crying out in the midst of this scene of total destruction that the Babylonians have left after their attack. Verse 1. Why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pasture? Remember the people you purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance whom you redeemed, Mount Zion where you dwelt. Turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. All this destruction the enemy has brought on the sanctuary crying out in anguish. Have you ever seen one of those scenes in the news perhaps where you you watch a news team come alongside of a family when they're walking back into a town to see their home after they've had like a major natural disaster. It could be a tornado, it could be a flood. And and they're with this family as they're walking down the streets and they don't recognize anything and they get up to where their home used to be and there's nothing left but disaster. And you just see, and it's like gripping, the tears dripping down their face. All they knew, all they had, all that was familiar has been just destroyed in an instant. And they ran for the hills to save their lives and they come back and they find now it's utter shambles. That, that's the sort of moment that this psalmist here is describing. But, but he's not walking through the streets for the first time. Notice how he says in verse one, why have you rejected us forever? Verse three, turn your steps towards these everlasting ruins. This is, this is not new. This is not news. This is not a new moment. This is not the first time the psalmist, in his mind's eye, is walking through the th- streets of Jerusalem after it's been decimated. No, this has probably been going on for years, maybe maybe decades. The destruction. And the pain is still so real, even though it's been years and decades. And the fact that it has dragged on for so long and stayed in this play this, this scene of just ruins and rubble everywhere, probably all that much more makes the psalmist cry out in despair because now it's not only like the Babylonians came in and attacked, but it's like, God, why are you not listening? And the bitterness is just that much more tangible. The whole scene is still so vivid in the psalmist's mind's eye. Verse four, your foes roared in the place where you met with us. They set up their standards as signs. Those, those vile Babylonians sieged the walls, starved the people, stormed and broke through the walls and then ran right into the temple. The place where you met with us, the psalmist said. This was a sacred space. This was a, a set apart space. This was where God had said to them back in Exodus. For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance of the tent of meeting, which then became the temple, but the offerings to be made before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. These wicked, bloodthirsty Babylonians came into the place where God met with his people. And they desecrated that place. They set up their standards. That, that, that phrase standards, it's talking about banners, flags. They, they went into the place that was God's home They ripped everything to shreds and then they put up banners of their pagan gods all around as if to say, ha, look who reigns in this place now. They brought their signs of their their idols into the very home of the Lord, mockingly desecrating Yahweh's place. They behaved, verse 5, like men wielding axes to cut through thickets of trees, flailing left and right and all around. They smashed all the carved panelings with their axes and hatchets. They burned your sanctuary to the ground. They defiled the dwelling place of your name. The temple was a majestic place. It was beautiful and spectacular and carefully designed and beautifully built. We read in 1 Kings chapter 6, Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold. He extended gold chains across the front of the inner sanctuary, which were overlaid with gold. On the walls, all around the temple, in both the inner and outer rooms, he carved cherubim and palm trees and opened flowers. And, and these Babylonians came in with their hatches and their axes and their, their shovels and their crowbars, and they ripped the whole things to shreds they destroyed all the careful craftsmanship, they they desecrated all the sacred space, they ripped it to pieces and then they burned it to the ground. They said in their hearts, we will crush them completely. They burned every place where God was worshiped in the land. And as a result now, for years, for decades, perhaps, The psalmist says, verse 9, we are given no miraculous sign. No prophets are left. None of us knows how long this will be. God has gone silent. And the voices of the enemies, oh, they are anything but silent. How long will the enemy mock you, O God? Will the foe revile your name forever forever? Why do you hold back your hand right now? Take it from the folds of your garment and destroy them, God. This song in these first few verses powerfully, vividly paints the picture of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The picture of the pain That the people of God were feeling as these these Babylonians came in and just stomped on everything that was for the Lord and ruined it all. It rips at your heart. It's to rip at your heart. We're to feel the anguish with the psalmist. But if all we had was this psalm, the words that we see here, we, we would be perhaps a little bit misled. We would would be perhaps a little bit misinformed if all we had were these verses. We'd be a bit misguided, I think, because we're given kind of the impression as we read these first few verses that that the Israelites, the people of God, were in Jerusalem and oh, these wicked Babylonians that came in and utterly destroyed us as we were helpless and innocent. I, I mean, let me just reread. Verse one, why have you rejected us forever, O God? Why does your anger smolder against the sheep of your pastor? Remember your people, verse two. How long will they mock you, O God? Verse 10, why do you hold back your hand, verse 11? In these statements here, we get the sense that the Israelites were kind of innocent bystanders, but, but here we need to see the first lesson for us today from this psalm. If you're taking notes, Jot this down, it's a huge insight for us from this Psalm, friends. It's this, God's warnings are gracious gifts and we ignore them at our peril. We we need to see here, friends, that the, the warnings of God are gracious gifts to you and to I and we ignore them at our own peril. The psalmist is crying out, why God, why have you done this? Why have you abandoned this? Why have you turned your hand against us? Why have you allowed this enemy to keep going? Why are you letting their mocking continue? As if the psalmist and the people are rather unsuspecting victims here, but that is not the case. That's not how this all went down. Literally for decades, centuries even, God has been giving his people warnings about how they are to live and what will happen. You go right back to the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 28, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all of his commands that I have given you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. But Moses warned the people, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all of his commandments and decrees that I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. See, see, even right back to the very beginning with Moses, before they even entered the promised land, God had gotten Moses to write down these rules saying, if you live this way, it's going to go well for you. But if you live this way against me, it's going to go really bad. But they didn't listen. We read in the book of Zechariah, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, return to me declares the Lord Almighty. And I will return to you. Do not be like your forefathers to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn from your evil ways and your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. So he, he sent prophets like Amos who said, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will go straight out through the breaks in the wall. And you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. If you don't listen, the walls are going to be broken down and you will be dragged away. That's what God said. Jeremiah, again and again, I sent all my servants and the prophets to you. They said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods and serve them. Then you shall live in the land I have given you to your fathers but you have not paid attention or listened to them. Looking back on all these events years after this psalmist writes, Nehemiah wrote, you warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobedient. They disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them stubbornly. They turned their backs on you because stiff, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them, but your spirit by your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. God wrote down in his word and declared from the mouth of his prophets through Moses, through Zechariah, through Amos, through Jeremiah, and many other instances. He, he warned them patiently. He urged them earnestly with, with love and grace and pleading, but the people didn't Listen. They, they just stuck their fingers in their ears and were like, la, 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 la. I don't care what you have to say, God. The people didn't see the warnings of God as gracious gifts. They saw them as burdens to throw off. The people did not take the warnings of God seriously. They thought because nothing has happened to them, they were fine. The people did not think God knew what he was talking about. They thought they knew better. They just refused over and over and over and over again to listen to God. Their hearts got harder and harder and harder. And ultimately, God said, fine. I I warned you, I pleaded with you, I sent person after person to beckon you back, I've given you so many good gifts, you don't want it, fine. Here's what's gonna happen. And Babylon swept in. Dear brothers and sisters, I think there is such an important lesson for us here today. Because do we not have the same warnings from God? In fact, actually, we in our Bibles have way more warnings from God than even the Israelites did back at this time. we have in God's word telling us direction, God saying to us, here is how to parent your children. Here is how to honor your parents. Here is how to live in marriage. Here is how to be a church family. Look in the book. Here is how you are to respond when you sin. Here is how you are to respond when you see your brother or sister sin. Here is how you are to fill your mind and what you are to fill your mind with. Here are the things that you are to flee to the hills from and have nothing to do with. Here is the language that you are supposed to fill your mouth and come off of your lips with. have all of this, are we seeing the warnings of God, the direction of God as gracious gifts to us? Are we seeing all of these things that God has laid out for us in his word as gracious gifts to be treasured? or are we just very often like the Israelites? Think in your own life, think in in my life. This This is a probing, piercing question. How often do we see the gracious warnings of God as gifts versus how often do we throw them off because we just think they're burdensome? See, how often do we not take the warnings of God seriously because we think, well, my life is going fine right now. It must not be a problem to be living this way. How often do we dismiss the warnings of God because we think we know better than God? We reject his warnings. We don't heed his counsel. And then we end up with the psalmist here being like, why God, why is my house such a mess? Why why are my kids so awry? Why is my marriage such a disaster? Why am I in so much angst? Why am I struggling through so much trouble? Why am I going through all of this? Why? Well, did we heed the warnings of God, which tell us, the way to the good life, and warn us of the disaster that will come if we go down that path? Now, to to be really clear here, let let me just make it very clear. I'm not saying that every time we go through a hardship, or a challenge, or pain, or struggle, that that is because we've been disobedient. I'm not saying that. I am not, I'm not saying to any of us that if we keep all of the warnings of God, we will have a perfectly smooth life in this world. I'm not saying that either. I'm not professing either of those two things. But, but here's what I am saying. If we live in disobedience to God, we should not in any way be shocked when we have our lives breaking down. There should be no questions in our minds. There should be no wrestlings or confusion as to what the problem is. When God says, here's the good way to live and we reject that and do not heed his warnings as gracious gifts, but throw them off as burdens, stick our fingers in our ears and say, we know what is best. Well, guess what? It's not gonna go well, dear friends. Now let's look back here in our Psalm, verse 12 we see the second major section of this psalm and it's got a pretty major term. Verse 12, it says, But you, O God, are my king from of old. You bring salvation upon the earth. It was you who split open the sea by your power. You broke the heads of the monsters in the waters. It was you who crushed the heads of the Leviathan and gave him as food to the creatures of the desert. It was you who opened up springs and streams. You dried up the ever-flowing river. The day is yours and yours also the night. You established the sun and the moon. It was you who set all the boundaries of the earth. You made both summer and winter. We, we turn here from speaking as a group, we plural, to one person, seemingly Asaph, one of the choir leaders, takes center stage. And the second major point for us to see from the psalm is this. If you're, again, taking notes, jot this down, jot it down in maybe the little kind of you know margin of your Bible here. My God brings salvation upon the earth. You need to know this. My God, he brings salvation upon the earth. I was talking just a couple weeks ago in um, my kitchen in the morning as our kids were getting ready for camp and they were making their lunches. And my my youngest son who just turned five, he he asked me this question while he's making his his lunch in the morning. He says, dad, 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 I've I've got a question for you. When, When God was a baby, did he still have all of his powers? I'm like, where did this come from? I'm just rubbing the sleep out of my eyes. But these are kind of the crazy questions that sometimes five year olds ask when they're, you know, just walking around. They have these ponderings. Uh, it reminds me too, like in the back seat of our car, sometimes our kids will be, you know, at each other, and you can't do that, you can't do that, you're not strong enough to lift this or whatever. And then, and then he often will pipe in, "Yeah, I can't lift that, but God can do that because God can lift anything." That, that's kind of the sentiment that the psalmist is about to go to here. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know Babylon destroyed all of the temple. I know it brought about all of this destruction. I know you're tasting and feeling all the pain of sin as the result. But God, do you know how big God is? God is strong enough to lift anything. He's got this beautiful childlike faith here that he brings us back to. It was, and he starts to recount here, in this poetic way, he starts to recount the Exodus. Yeah, 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 but God is stronger. He brings about salvation over all the nations. Don't worry about Babylon. It was you who split open the sea by your power. Hey, hey, people of God today, do you remember When Pharaoh had the Israelites in slavery, but he let them go and they went out into the wilderness and then all of a sudden he changed his mind and goes chasing after them. And all those people, including men, women, and children were trapped between Pharaoh's rushing chariot army and the sea and they had nowhere to go. And then what did God do? God is the one who split open the sea by his power so the people could walk through on dry ground. You broke the heads of the monsters in the waters, verse 13 continues. After the people had walked through on dry ground, Pharaoh came marching through to try and get them and he brought the waters down and broke the head of the monster, of Pharaoh. It was you who crushed the heads of the Leviathan. The Leviathan, that's like mythical monster, sea monster, that's, you know, think Loch Ness. But but actually we see a number of spots in the scriptures where where Pharaoh is actually referred to as Leviathan or sea monster. It's talking about here how God brought down Pharaoh and Egypt when he crushed him with the waters. It was you who opened up springs and streams. So they walked out into the desert after they got through the the Red Sea on dry ground. They're walking around the desert. There's nothing for them to drink. And so God brought out of rock in the middle of the desert, Moses touching it with his staff and gushing streams. of pure, beautiful, cold water came rushing out. Who can do that? Nobody's big enough to do that except except God's big enough to do that. It was you who dried up the ever-flowing rivers. When when we're now thinking about Joshua leading the people of God, finally after they wandered around in the wilderness, they get to the edge of the wilderness and on the other side of the river, the rushing, ever-flowing, high-season water River is blocking their way. And what does God do again? He dries up the river so they could walk across. Don't you see? God is bigger than the Babylonians. Do you you remember all the things he did for Pharaoh? And I know at this moment, it feels like you look around Jerusalem, you look around the temple, you reflect back in your mind's eye and all you feel is the pain of the brokenness of that sin. But I'm telling you, God is the God who can rescue over all and from all the nations. God is bigger. That's what the Psalmist is saying here. Have you forgotten today? how big your God is, dear friend. Do you remember how big and mighty and strong your God is? When we find ourselves in the throngs of the brokenness and the messed up world, sometimes, sometimes because of stuff we've done, we've messed up and we've messed up big time and we've hurt others that are really close to us. We've ruined the good things that were going for us in our lives. We've left a trail, a wake of carnage and bodies behind us and broken hearts and broken promises and broken relationships. And we feel like, man, I look at all of this and feel like there's no way there is possibly a solution. I've messed up too much, broken too much. I'm too far gone. Do you remember the God who rescued his people from Egypt. Oh, he is able, dear friend. Sometimes we live in the midst of brokenness and sin and we feel the pain of sin and it's not because of anything we've done, but it's because of other things that have been done to us. And the shame feels so heavy. The anger feels so heavy. Deep, The hurt and the wounds are so still tender, even though it may be decades later, like the psalmist here walking through the carnage and it's been decades, but it still feels so like it was just yesterday. And we're like, I don't know how I can possibly get over this. I don't know how I could possibly get through this. I don't know how I could possibly release this. Oh friend, do you remember the God who was able to free his people from Egypt. But now as we read this Psalm today, we also need to be encouraged in an even bigger way than that. See, because not only do we serve the God of Moses, who was able to rescue his people from Egypt, we see now, looking back and knowing the whole story, that that the scriptures actually point us not just to Moses as a great example of a rescuer, but actually point us to an even greater Moses. I don't know if you've ever noticed this theme in the scriptures, but it's undeniable in the scriptures that we see by the Holy Spirit's leading, Moses was just a foretaste. Moses was just a breadcrumb on the trail. Moses was just a pointer to, a head to an even greater rescuer. I mean, have you ever thought about the connection between Moses who was born a baby and had a ruler over the the, the whole area who wanted to kill all of the babies and so, Moses was put into a basket and rescued. Well, many centuries later, there was another even greater Moses who would come, who had a ruler over his area, who decreed that all the young baby boys be killed. And that baby boy was rescued through the inspiration of a dream to his parents who fled down to Egypt. Have you ever noticed that Moses was taken out into the wilderness to wander around for 40 years because of the sin that he did? And the even greater Moses, whose name is Jesus, at the beginning of his life and ministry went out into the wilderness for 40 days. And he was tempted to sin. But unlike the first Moses who sinned and who fell and who was out in the wilderness because of his sin, this new rescuer went toe to toe with the devil and did not sin. Have you ever noticed that Moses led the people into rescue by sacrificing a Passover lamb? And then Jesus came to be the ultimate Passover lamb by laying down his life. Have you ever noticed that Moses freed the Israelites from slavery to a physical leader at one time with Pharaoh in Egypt? But an even greater Moses, our Savior Jesus came and freed us from a far worse slavery to sin by rescuing us forever by going to the cross and dying for us. See, not only do we have the God of Moses who did the incredible work of rescuing his people from slavery to Egypt, we have the God of Jesus, who came and rescued us from sin, death, Satan, to give us eternal life forever, friends. My God, you need to hear this. No matter how deep and dark the sin is, no matter how broken the world around you feels, no matter how broken you feel, we serve the God who brings salvation upon the earth, which leads us to our final Lesson in this Psalm, to finish us off here, cry out with faith-filled waiting. See, it is true that we have a marvelous rescuer that we can look back upon, but we still live, you know this, in angst-ridden, broken, sour, unsettled. This isn't right waiting, don't we? Like that, that's our experience right now. We, we have a rescuer to look back on, but we still live in the waiting of this isn't right right now. It's not right in me. It's not right around me. It's not right what's happened to me. And for the psalmist, all the mess of Babylon, when he wrote the psalm, wasn't gone. All the mess of Babylon hadn't lifted. For us, all the garbage of sin and brokenness isn't just gone either. Not, not yet. And so we resonate with the psalmist here where he says, remember how the enemy has mocked you, O Lord, how foolish people have reviled your name. Do not hand over the life of your dove to wild beasts. Do not forget the lives of your afflicted people forever. Have regard for your covenant because Haunts of violence fill the dark places of the land. Do not let the oppressed retreat in disgrace. May the poor and needy praise your name. Rise up, O God, defend your cause. Remember how fools mock you all day long. Do not ignore the clamor of your adversaries, the uproar of your enemies, which rises continually. There is still a lot of pain here. There's still a ton of angst. And there's still quite a bit of uncertainty. But do you notice in these last few verses here what's missing? See, see the, the reality of the waiting, the brokenness and the angst is still very much here for the psalmist. But the whys are gone. The why, God, why have you done this? Why are you doing this? Where are you? The demands against God have vanished. The demands for timelines have ceased. There is a sense here of still living in the brokenness and the waiting and crying out to God, but with faith-filled waiting. God, he's real. God, even right now, is alive. God is able. So we cry out, rise up, O God. Your people need you. So many people are rejecting you. The truth of your word and your character is being mocked. Rise up, O God. Your ways are being ridiculed. Your people are being treated with disgrace. We wait, but we wait with a faith-filled crying out, being thrust forward by this psalm to remember the very closing words of the whole book when Jesus said, behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And so the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him who hears say, come. We cry out with faith-filled waiting, amen. Come, Lord Jesus.